Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Bobby Morgan is a principal, writer, speaker, and consultant who works with other educators to promote equity and culturally responsive teaching practices. With over a decade in education, primarily in under-resourced population, Bobby is passionate about cultivating brilliance in Black and Brown communities. Through coaching, workshops, and meaningful professional development, Bobby desires to change the educational landscape ensuring pathways of success for students. In addition to his work within academic institution, Bobby works as an educational advocate partnering to fight for equitable policies and legislative priorities for all students. Today, we welcome Bobby Morgan with Liberation Lab to change the narrative with J.D. Fuller. All right, Bobby Morgan, welcome. It's uh, amazing to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being willing to come on, your flexibility and all of that. I want to get right into a little bit about you. First of all, let me just say, I see your intensity. I see you, okay? <laughs> we are cut from the same mold. So I was immediately drawn to you. I was like, oh, this brother is about something real deep. So I kind of want to know more about you. Like, where did you grow up and what is it like to be you? Wow. So people who have been following me for a while kind of know a little bit about this, but I was born in Houston, Texas. Um, I am an adoptee. So my biological mother, she actually um, left me on a doorstep after I was born in Houston. I, the doorstep happened to be a nurse. The nurse took me in and took care of me. I bounced around the foster care system for a while. Then my mother got me. We moved to Jersey after some tumultuous things there and primarily raised by my grandparents. And so that's the Cliff Notes version of a lot of details there. But all of that to say that although I, I wish it wasn't this way, part of the reason I'm so passionate about the things that I am is because I know what it's like to live in a world where you're not necessarily wanted, you're excluded and you're pushed aside. And so for me, the work is embedded the core of who I am. So whether that be advocacy for students, trying to work for some policy changes in our schools, things like that, it's, it's all because if that rule was not there, somebody who looks like me and comes from where I come from wouldn't have access. And so, yeah, that, that's how I'd start that question. Thank you for your vulnerability. And clearly I have not gone back far enough in your history. So thank you so much for sharing that because that that explains a lot to me. And so just the second part of that question, what is it like to be you? I think because of the way that any type of front facing or public facing work that you do, kind of people will boil you down to like highlights, but they don't necessarily see the work, intentionality, and even pain that goes into the work that you do. So it's almost like one side, yes, it's great to be able to speak to people, connect, train, coach, and lead people. And then on the other side, sometimes it's lonely. 
sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're misunderstood or misrepresented. And I think that people can very easily, because of whether it be the size of your platform or whatever else, can boil you down to, oh, everybody must love you because you have this. No, not really. That's not really how it works. And there's a lot of headaches behind it. But I do it because it's worth it. I do it because I don't have another choice. I just want to pause right there for a second because I think that's the piece. That's the piece, right? There's so many people who don't look like us who get a lot of exposure. Yes. And I say this to every young guest I have on, or younger guests, of which there are many. I was out there on the front line when, before social media. And so to see all these people blowing up, for me, it's very exciting because I feel like I can worry a little bit less. Yeah. Because this has been my passion all of my life. But I wonder for you younger brown and black people, what is it like to see people who don't have the same oppression as us, who don't have the same struggles that we have had, um, just blow up just because of the privilege? How does that feel? It's hard to see because it's almost like even in the ways in which you're trying to unlearn so my white counterparts will do, they still can't even decenter themselves in that. They would rather unlearn from the predetermined safety of someone else being. And that person is just parroting points that they heard from us anyway. I mean, that's the thing, right? So it's like, are you really listening to the message or is it just that the messenger looks like you and now you can hear it? You know what I mean? And so I really have to do a lot of work internally because there are parts of that that'll make you enraged. And then I have to go back to my core conviction of leading with humility and leading with love. Because if I don't do that, then I'm no better to anyone in the process, right? Because then I'm allowing the vitriol that I might feel for something like that to rule me. And it changes my message and changes who I am. So yeah, I have to do a lot of work continually about that. It's complicated. You described that so well and so clearly. On one hand, we are excited to have the message passed, no matter how you receive it. It's great to have it received. On the other hand, how do we not have negative feelings given the blood we have shed to teach these lessons and share this message and then to have it received in a way that it's like not even representative? or they forget to uplift black and brown voices in a way that says, hey, I'm not, this is the only thing I made up. I got this from the people who have actually gone through the pain. Right, right. That's difficult. And it's even in the subtleties of how certain things are presented. I'll give you an example. So back when all our schools transitioned to virtual instruction, I'm sitting there teaching my class. At the time, I was still in the classroom and my son is next to me. My son is learning a lesson about Henry Box Brown, and I'm listening to it, because I would just happen to be able to break. My kids were doing some independent practice, so I just happened to have a chance to tune in. And they start talking about how wonderful this man was, how persistent, his fortitude. They don't tell the part that he had to pour acid on his hands to get out of the labor which he was forced to do to even get in a position to mail himself to freedom. They don't talk about the conditions that made him have to sit in a box that was, I I don't even remember the measurements, but to sit in this box to mail himself to freedom. They don't talk about all the conditions that led to that. They talk about how wonderful he was. And I had to teach the lesson again to my son in a way that talked about white supremacy, white supremacist delusion, what it is and why 
Henry Box Brown had to mail himself. And it is racism without racists. It is all the things that we, so we'll talk about the history of it, but we don't want to point out the bad guy. Why? Yeah. And so I bring that up to say that when we're, you know, when we have these conversations about how to move things forward and then our voices get left out of the equation, you have to ask yourself why, what is it that a person who we don't ever tell a story without the person who's overcome, without the hero, without the center of the story. We don't ever do that. And the fact that a group of people feel like they can't tell the story <laughs> because if they stick to the truth of the story, people who look like them are going to be the bad guy and they can't be seen that way. It's just hard. Yeah, I feel you. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's very insightful. And well, how did your son receive the message when you gave him the real story? Was he surprised? He was angry. Ooh. He was angry. And my son, he's a lot like me. He lives in his head a lot. He thinks through things. And then when he comes to you, you know, he's thought about it for like at least three days before he came to you with <laughs> it. Like he's just that kind of person. But he's very angry to the point of tears. And I had to explain to him because then he was like, well, is it like that today? Do people still feel that way? And as a parent, you want to shield your kid. You want to be able to say, no, it's not that way anymore. But I'm also not willing to lie to my kid. So yes, there are ways and spaces where this exists. It may not look like having to pour acid on your hands, but it may look like having to alter your resume so your name looks different. It may look like ensuring that you dress, act, and talk a certain way when you walk into the space that you're trying to get the job in. It may look like having to avoid places and spaces. Yeah, that still happens, son. And it's a hard conversation. It's an ongoing conversation, but I would rather give him the reality of the situation. Talk to him about the ways in which he can navigate these spaces and not live in this idealistic view of where things are and where they're going. I believe it was Representative Tim Scott talking about America is not a racist nation. And I'm like, man, if we can't even agree to that, <laughs> and that, <laughs> if we can't even get there, we got a long, long way to go. You know what I mean? Yes, yes I do. Thank you for sharing that. So you were in gifted classes. That, that comes as, as absolute no surprise to me. You said that you spent six to eight hours bombarded with messages regarding your lack of belonging in your own words. What was that like and what has that, what was that the catalyst for? What has that, what have you lost as a result of that? You know what I mean? Like it's a positive and a negative. So what's yeah. the loss in the game? As I traversed into the gifted and talented program, it was me and one other black girl, sorry, me and two other black girls. That was it. Everybody else was in gen ed, general population, whatever else, right? And so there were messages from people who were trying to encourage me and say, like, you know, you got to keep going, you got to keep doing this. And But then there were also the invisible tax we talk about. Nobody necessarily, there was two people who looked like me. I was the only black guy in the whole thing. There was... In the process of being in these gifted and talented programs, it's 
there's this struggle to feel like, you know, I belong here. I'm supposed to be here mm. when the people the who people are looking are. at you, grading your papers and judging the things that you do are communicating a message that says otherwise. So sixth grade year, my mom was going through a divorce. It was a very hard time for me emotionally. Yeah. And I was just a lot of anger. Didn't know how to process it. I'm 11. And so th the teacher at the time never asked me what's going on, what's wrong. So the message that came through loud and clear was, it doesn't matter what you're going through, it matters what you produce. And because I wasn't producing at the same level from which I started, she very quickly and very easily on my fourth market period report card could write the words, because you wrote on these report cards, handwriting, this student does not belong oh, in the man. gifted and talented program. Yeah. I still remember it to this day vividly. And that that marked me for much of my career, for much of my educational experience. I never thought that, well, she must be right because I'm no longer there. Other people would look at my work and say, no, you need, to be, you need to be in there. What are you doing? And those words were louder to me than anybody else's words because she had deemed me as other. And so the second part of your question, for me, you know, what, what, I, what I see for students who are coming through programs like this is we reserve the best of what we can offer for these students. And then after that, we give everybody else the leftovers. And so my struggle is if we're really going to talk about equity beyond black boxes and anti-racist statements on your website, show me where the money's going. Show me that you're putting your finances behind the things that you say you believe. Show me that for the kids who have been othered, that you're putting resources to counteract the things that have been going on. Because we already know the statistics are out there. We know that the people who are in our schools right now, the young people in our schools right now, that they're dealing with a myriad of oppressive things. So are you spending your money in a way to say, we're going to provide the training, the resources, and the things necessary to counteract that? Otherwise, it's just lip service. And so for me, my experience in and out of the gifted and talented program serves as a catalyst for why I'm so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Because I know what it's like to be told that you belong and then pay the price on that end, and then also be removed and then have to deal with the fallout of that and feel like you don't belong and not necessarily apply yourself academically because you were told that the best you could do wasn't good enough. First of all, I feel like I'm at church, and so I'm trying not to make noises all the while you're talking. Second of all, I feel like my head's gonna nod off because I've heard this story so many different times and seen it in real time, and it's discouraging, it's powerful, it's important to hear it with different voices and different ways and to recognize that it's always the same thing. It does not change. When are people gonna get that something else needs to happen? So your passion makes sense to me, I appreciate it. I was reading some of your history and you said, black folks were suitable for war, yet not supported when the war ended. The same mm -hmm. holds for black and brown children in classrooms. 
over these yet to be United States of America. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I say this pretty frequently, but like when you talk about America and its inception, it's like going to your local bakery and you want to get some bread, right? And if you go into the local bakery and you want to get some bread, nobody goes to the local bakery and says, you know what? I really like the yeast that you put into that bread. You don't taste yeast, you don't. It, it's just there to help it rise. And in the same way, the fabric of America is such that racism has been the yeast of America, right? We've risen in some ways, shape or form, because we have continued to pillage, victimize and oppress a group of people and then lift up another group of people because of it. So one thing that I think we struggle with is having an accurate view of history. We don't hold up the mirror to ourselves and say, this is who we are, right? Even in the name, United States of America, are we really united? As we sit here, they're on like the 10th vote for the Speaker of the House, the 10th. And, and we're talking about a group of 20 people who have done a whole bunch of stuff like there's a whole, I won't go down that whole rabbit hole, but you get the idea, right? Like we're yeah, not as united as we like to believe we are. And so for me, a reminder is, and what I try to communicate is these yet to be United States of America helps us remember that we are very much divided in the places that matter the most. And so for somebody who's of African descent in this country, you are always as good as what you can produce, always as good as how you can help the bottom line. So you're good to go to war because we can use your body for that. But when you come back, you're not good for the spoils of that victory. You can't have access to any of those things. Your 40 acres and a mule, forget that, no. But thank you for your service, right? And then for kids in our schools, you can continue to produce, you can continue to put out, and if you perform athletically, oh, absolutely, we'll keep you there. You are good for the brand, you are good for our business, uh, but are we gonna make sure that you have everything that you need? Absolutely not, absolutely not, because you're only as good as what you can make for us. And you see it, you see it embedded in the way that our young ladies feel like their image, who they are, what they put on, all of that, right? In schools, I see it. There's a deficit that they're trying to work their way back from in various ways. And a lot of it comes from the lie that they believed about themselves. And so a lot of the work that I do daily as a principal is to try to put our kids in a position to where they recognize you can't blame the plant for growing wrong when the soil is toxic. Mm. We got to get to the soil. And let me help you understand how the soil has harmed you. Right. And so I just think that you've only been known as the product of something or you are only as good as what you can produce. Then that changes everything for you. And so my hope is through the work that I'm doing um, that people begin to see the truth of what that means for them. So true. So amazing. Thank you. You said it is a strange phenomenon to be educators who witness our students learning on predictable timetables, yet believe that our time in the profession means we no longer need to learn. Please explain. Educators, they have this immense, like, so I say that with love for and admiration for the profession. Because it's a very interesting world to be in as an educator when you feel like 
who you are isn't respected by the world that you're serving, right? There are no, there is no other field existing with any type of success without educators, right? We teach those who go into various places to do those things, right? So they started in a school. At the same time, you look at the ways in which our numbers continuously show that we have a disproportionate effect to black and brown folks in our schools, right? That there's an adverse effect there. Um, the numbers in which we are classifying black and brown people for special education programs, the fact it's tied to our resources and dollars, right? So you get a bigger multiplier if you are from a disadvantaged background. And then if you are in the special ed program, you get more dollars. And so we'll do that because we'll get more money, but we're not actually helping in the way that we should these students, but we'll continue to pop out your, your classifications. So I'm looking at this play out and I'm like, well, why is it that it continues to exist this way? Like we must believe that what we are doing as educators is the way it should be. There has to be embedded a belief that says, you know what, regardless of the fact that these numbers might be showing that something's wrong, I have to be convinced that this is the right and true and only way to do this. And so my struggle is when our educators don't lead with humility that says, you know what, I can still grow and I can still learn. I can still change. I am an advocate and I firmly believe this. If you feel like you have grown to the point where you don't need to learn anything else, you should quit today. And so I try to encourage my educators who will tap into the program, tap into anything I'm doing. We always got to be growing. Like you got to lead with a, a learner's stance. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to learn and unlearn, it makes you a far better educator. When I first came into education, I was handed this book called Teach Like a Champion. Okay. I have another name for that book, so I'm gonna qualify what I'm about to say by saying these are my comments. <laughs> these are not reflective of, <laughs> of the Change of Narrative podcast. These are my comments. <laughs> I call that book Teach Like a White Supremacist. And the reason that I call it that <laughs> is because it is all about high control methods to get kids to do what it is that you want. No, no motivation per se. And the way that it's been touted and put out, especially in our charter schools that primarily serve kids that look like me and you. And it's written by this white man who's telling white teachers how to teach black kids and people pick it up, read it, and they implement it all day, every day. Silent transitions. You got to be standing in a line. You can, and if you go into these schools and you literally line it up line by line, precept upon precept, and you look at it right next to a jail, they mirror. They mirror like all of it. You line up, your hands better be at a certain place, better be shown where I can see them. Once you get into the room, you have 30 seconds to pick up a pencil and begin working. The transitions are silent. You can't talk in the room. The only place that you could talk maybe is a lunchroom. And even then I'm going to control what it is that you do. And so our kids aren't necessarily developing the skills. They're just being told this is what you need to do. And so my point in bringing that up is to say, that's how I was taught when I first came in. So if I had a conversation with even who I was when I first came in 
I'm having a very strong conversation with Bobby 15 years ago. And the only way that I've been able to grow and develop and change, and I'm still continuing to do so, is because I want to lead with a radical humility that says, I always want to learn. I always want to grow. I always want to change because lives, literal lives are dependent upon me learning better. And if our educators can't do that, if they can't respect the craft that they're putting out enough to learn and continuously grow, then there's no hope for anybody else respecting us. You fired me up on the inside and there's so many different places I want to go, but I also want to stay with Liberation Lab. But I do want to say, you touched on something I think is so important, where even though teachers are not respected as much as they should be, they are giving a lot of honor. When people succeed, people are always thanking that teacher. They are acknowledged frequently. They, however, will not take that same criticism for the amount of children who have failed. They immediately turn to the parents and the lack of support, the lack of resources. So if you can take the honor, you also have to take some of the responsibility. And that's what you humble. So when you talk about humility, you came from humble beginnings. You can't lose that as a human being. You can't, you know, add a black man onto the humble beginnings. This is so ingrained in who you are. It's not something you can give away. And as a result of that, I realized that not many people have access to the humility you are speaking of in order to Hmm. be open to learning and receiving. I mean, there are teachers who, you know, have gone to Harvard and they come out trying to teach people like they brought them to Harvard with them. And you can't get them to understand that's not going to work here. And yet they feel personally offended that their education went to waste. So there is a gap between what it is you're saying, which is how they should be and the reality of where they are. How do we get them there? How do we get them to understand what they're missing in order to be curious about what it would be like to gain some humility in order to change how they do what they do? You gotta line up the aspirational future with the intent of everything that we do, right? And so leaders, principals, coaches, instructional coaches, whoever is in charge of helping our teachers continuously grow, they've got to be able to wake up every morning, whether it be in a professional development or just in talking to teachers and say, we are going here. Whatever that here is, right? It should obviously align with the practices that you say online, the things that you want to say, whether it be on your social media or whatever have you. But there, there must be some intent in terms of the aspirational goals in which we're trying to, to find, right? All schools talk about equity. It's the buzzword, right? We want to be, we desire to be an anti-racist and equitable institution. The second question that I always have in that situation is how do you want to do that? And in that process, those things aren't cookie cutter. It's not one size fits all. And so what winds up happening is we want a checklist of things to do. We want, did you take the resources you were given from this program and apply it to those kids? Check. Did you um, have your mandatory anti-racist training at the beginning of the year check did you right so we go down the list of these checks but we don't realize that at the end of the day you're still teaching groups of people who have certain needs and certain ways that they go about things and so i think you get there one by continuously 
putting in front of them the aspirational future, which informs the culture and the practice of your school, right? I think two, you have your core values, which guide the how for what you're supposed to be doing. Sometimes I believe in either coaching up or coaching out. Mm. So I'm going to coach you to be able to do this. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to go above and beyond to ensure that you have everything you need to be able to do what I'm asking you to do. And at the end of all of that, if you're the person that says, nah, I'm not going to do what's best for all kids, you don't need to be here. I'm giving you every opportunity to do that. And I'm going to make sure I remove every barrier in the process. But if at the end of the day, the last barrier is you, you don't need to be here. I think that that's a hard pill to swallow for education. Because when we have certain standards of, oh, well, I've been an educator for 20 years. Oh, I've been an educator for this minute. Okay, cool. And, and I respect that you've been doing this for a while, but how have you grown and changed in the process? Because the way we educated back then and the way we need to educate now are very different. And that's okay. Things grow and change and develop. The thing that happens in education is we are devoid of innovation. We still sit in rows. We still have this industry mindset that says, all right, we're going to sit in our rows. We're going to write down. We're going to listen to this person. But then when you go out to the workforce, it's collaboration. It's thinking outside the box. It's questioning. It's And our kids are taught very early. Don't question. Don't ask too many questions. If you ask too many questions, you're a troublemaker and then the troublemakers aren't liked and they aren't given the grade and they aren't given the things or the resources. And so if, if a kid is naturally inquisitive, naturally a disruptor of the norm, you've beat that out of them by the time they get to the place where they're most needed to do that. So you have to give them an aspirational identity. You have to give them core values. You have to coach up and coach out. But then also, lastly, you have to give them a set of accountability. If you do not provide, these are the things we're going to hold to. And if you can't do these things, then here's where we have our process of holding you accountable to making sure those things are being done. If we can't do those four things at least, then I think that this doesn't change, sadly. Bobby Morgan, it is clear to me that this is more than a one-show conversation. So (laughs) I, if you don't mind... I'm going to end here because I have about four more questions that we have to get through. And this is so important and so powerful. I want to end here and just create another segment. Is that okay with you? That sounds great. Excellent. Thank you for the first half. I appreciate you. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.